I am Andrew Ron. I'm an accredited rural appraiser and I am president of the Montana chapter of the ASFMRA and communications director for the Montana Farm and Ranch Brokers Association, the two top industry organizations in the state. I am also the proud creator of Montana LandSource, the industry standard for access to rural land listings and sales and land market information and insights. There is no other more comprehensive resource for insider Montana land information than Montana LandSource. Go to www.mtlandsource.com. I am part of the Ranch Investor Podcast because I want to be part of the conversation with other top land experts on the future of the land market, land investment, land ownership, and management. I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. As a former commercial and ag banker, my main reason for doing this podcast is to simply gauge the market's appetite for crowdsourcing investment in a ranch real estate fund. This fund would allow you to hunt, fish, ride, camp, and recreate how you want while also enjoying the financial and portfolio benefits of investing in a large western ranch. For rural land enthusiasts who want to deepen their knowledge of the ranch real estate market, grow their portfolio, and be viewed as a trusted advisor. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Curated by subject matter experts to give you immense benefit because we believe your time is valuable. All right, let's get started. Yeah, let's get the pain over with. <laughs> Why is this going to be painful, George? <laughs> I'm with Mutt and Jeff. <laughs> Mutt and Jeff. <laughs> is that the, the new name of our uh, podcast show? No, not at the current Ranch time. Ranch Investor with Mutt and Jeff. <laughs> Why am I Mutt? I feel like a, a registered purebred. I'm not going to get into eugenics, but... <laughs> oh, okay. I'm not clean-shaven for you... Uh, Gen X or boomers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't respond to that. I, you're you're going to have to talk at some point, George. Yep. <laughs> my, my wife does not like when I grow a mustache like yours. I mean, I can, and I do, and I try, try, and I think it looks good, but I mean, yours looks fantastic. That's an excellent mustache. Well, thank you. <laughs> George Luther, I've been asking you to come on for two years now. What's been the hesitation? Never in Billings. Okay. Is that because uh, the when I stop by your office in Miles City, the amount of papers on your desk weighs more than my desk? Your desk is very clean compared to mine. <laughs> so your mind must not be as busy as my mind. <laughs> I, I, we don't want to go into what's in my mind. That's, that, that is no. a labyrinth. Um, so what, so what are you working on? Wind, crypto, carbon, oil, railroads, what, what the hell is Reservation there? issues. You, what's, what's, you've got some, uh, you got some challenging tasks and um, you're so hesitant to come on because you're afraid of being, uh, this being brought up in court, but you love taking the stand. <laughs> you, you love going at it with the, uh, the other attorney. Actually, I love going at it with certain brokers that think they uh, know the market really well. <laughs> well, that sounds like easy pickings. That sounds like uh, shooting ducks in a barrel. 
It depends it, which broker it is and which ones you're setting close to. Yeah. Well, I'm, sure. I, I'm just in sales. I, I, you guys are the data. You feed me the information. It's not my job to interpret. It's my job to get the deal closed, George. Yes, it is. But your job is also to interpret the market so you can get that thing closed. Yes. And uh, so how do I do that? As a broker, how do I interpret this changing market? Because it feels like today, what is today, June 1st? Are we? Yeah, yep. we're recording June 1st. 1st June 1st, 1st 2022. June. feels like there's a little uh, cracking happening, Andy. Is it, are we starting to see some uh, weakness out there? Oh, I don't know if I'd call it weakness. Uh, we're definitely seeing more listings come on the market, but they're getting picked off as soon as they, as soon as they come on. We're at 313 listings today. We've been hum hovering around 310, 315 listings all season, basically. And I keep expecting it to, I'm a lot busier. I'm mapping more properties, more new listings coming on the market, but they're, they're leaving as they come. And that's kind of an all-time, we're still at those all-time low inventory levels. Yep. yep, absolutely. So what does that mean, George? What uh, What's your crystal ball telling us about 2022? I, I mean, if you pick up, if you get on YouTube, they're calling for, and granted, they're selling fear and they're selling emotions. No, YouTube, no, is YouTube your source? source <laughs> well, for you correction. keep referencing YouTube all the time, I'm beginning to wonder. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all about selling uh, fear and anger, but they keep saying the, cr the crash is coming. It's going to happen. Is that so? You know, I've been through several different crashes, and if the ones with the crystal balls that says it's coming, they probably shouldn't be forecasting any more crashes. The, in other words, they should be getting it right, but there's too many forces in the market. You know, per Andy's uh, uh, discussion on 313 listings right now, um, you know, we're seeing the same thing um, throughout the area that there's properties that come on the market uh, and maybe not even fully vetted and they're gone. Uh, the interest rate environment's uh, still favorable. Um, you know, it hasn't really got pushed yet. And when you look at uh, long-term rates, you know, farm credit, the insurance companies are very competitive uh, at the current time. So that still gives buying power. And there's still institutional buyers and investors out there that are, um, you know, looking for properties. And when you say insurance companies, you're talking about like MetLife, AXA, Equitable, who will do 40-year amortizations? Yep. Yeah, and uh, are they a little more competitive on their rates? They they Loan seem to value. They they seem to be asset um, lenders, on, not cash flow. Uh, both. Okay. Both more. They're still more cash flow, but they're looking at that underlying asset too. Um, if, if you ask me a question, what we're working on, that varies. <laughs> that varies a lot. Why do uh, why do insurance companies like farm and ranch land? I think it's a, it's a, they've always liked it. It's a long-term, more stable type of holding. Uh, Sands the uh, late 1980s and, and early to mid 90s. Um, if you look at uh, their market share, I think between them and farm credit, they're, they're the ones grabbing most of the share right now. Mm. The, the banks can't compete on the, on the short-term, intermediate-term basis. Mm. And so insurance companies, I'm, I'm guessing life insurance, when someone writes a policy on me, they might not be expecting me to live into my 80s, but maybe the average person, the actuarials <laughs> deem the average person might live into their 80s. And so that's, that's a liability for them, that policy. And so they're looking for 
assets that are also 40 year time horizons that are those assets being loans. Yep. 20 years, 30 years on that end of it. But I am surprised at writing life insurance on you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Coulter, we jumped right in, right into the weeds, but maybe we should let our guest introduce himself. And who is George Luther? Yeah, we 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 assume everybody knows because uh, we know and have heard of him for so so long. But because he goes by King George. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> now, now, Mr. Wicks can refer to as the yeah. King. But right, right. We we kind of got the prince, you might say, <laughs> if George, if if Wicks is the king. So George, you're you're going on what 75 years old now, and you've been in the business for 55 of those years. Is that right? Someday I will be. <laughs> Someday I will be. Tell us your background. Who is who is George Luther? Um, George Luther is uh, basically we have a real estate appraisal uh, consulting management company based out in Miles City. Uh, we cover from Central Montana to Western Dakotas, Northern Wyoming. Uh, spent 11 and a half years of farm credit services, Federal Land Bank. So have a little bit of a banking background. Our uh, business is basically about um, 50 to 60% appraisal oriented. Um, the remainder is consultant management and a few sales. And when you were at farm credit, were you there during 18% interest rates? I was there during the 18% interest rates. Yeah, so talking about interest rates in this day and age is not a conversation you think is as relevant as some might based on your history and it, it, it's relevant because mm -hmm. of the where we're at but based on history you know we've been in the past when you talk about the late 70s and 80s your land loans were eight and a half to 12 percent that was real estate and your operating loans were basically equivalent to our credit card rates now 15 to 22 so and I also want to get this in. You've also been on the board of the uh, state board for real estate regula uh, regulation as well. Yep. Served, uh, still on the board, waiting the governor's uh, appointment to replace me for nine. I've been on there nine years, mm -hmm. Montana Board of Real Estate Appraisers. So uh, the board regulates the licensure of uh, real estate appraisers and appraisal management companies. And it sounds like you've learned a lot from that or, or gotten a lot different perspective through being on that I have, from what you've shared at our yeah, annual meetings. I have learned immensely about the whole valuation process, regulatory process concerning appraisals and valuations. But you still see, um, I don't know, bad actors, if that's a good word, people coming from other markets who, who kind of might pick the low-hanging fruit in this area. And there's, I mean, it's still... As a libertarian, I hate to say this, but it sounds like there's a need for some better regulation and appraisals and licenses and that you've seen guys come in and screw shit up. Um, yeah, you, you get a certain percentage no matter what. And some of them lack the geographical competency or the competency within the markets and don't take the time to um, look at those markets well enough, analyze them. And yeah, they do tend to screw some things up. Um, you know, the biggest issue we have is, is uh, when I was on the board was with the residential side. 95% of what we've seen were residential mm -hmm. oriented. But remember, there's a, there's a whole secondary market. There's a whole government entities that dictate a whole bunch of things they have to do with those, those appraisals. 
I was telling you guys before we started recording that we're in the process of selling my dad's house right now. And we were looking at offers last night and, and looking at ones, which ones required it to appraise. And I said, geez, I missed the good old days when I could have just appraised the house for whatever the hell we needed to say. <laughs> Damn regulation. Yeah. I can't appraise my dad's house for the, for the bank. Those are the best appraisers, in my opinion, when they ask you, call you up and ask you, what do you need it to be? <laughs> that, that's, that, that's all I need an appraiser to do, George. Well, somebody's got to keep you honest. <laughs> well, I mean, we might as well weigh in on this. I've always said, because uh, I'm a land appraiser, of course, as well, not a residential appraiser, or I haven't done residential appraisals. They're, they're pretty different animals. I mean, I get the sense that uh, residential appraisal, it's pretty much just validating whether a price, which is already known, is, is sufficient for collateralization. That, that, and versus a lot of the work we do is truly coming up with our opinion of value of a, of a piece of property, that it's a, almost a different assignment. Uh, residential is a whole different world yeah. um, with it and that type of stuff. Doing appraisals on rural properties, You've got so many other things, including emotions, that price might dictate, but the market itself is an aggregation of all those prices out there. So if Andy likes property because of the elk, Coulter likes it because it's seen, seen the beauty of it, and I like it because I can run some cattle on it, we all got different motivations and we're willing to pay differently, but in the end, how the market overall might not match any of our prices we're willing to pay for that property. And we're talking about market value of ranches. You've been getting into some more nuanced values like a pipeline. What does a pipeline uh, encumbrance take out of the value of that property, that, that ranch, the whole ranch or just 160 acres, maybe a utilities power line? Um, maybe uh, oil company, coal company coming in there and cutting up roads and and coal bed methane wells, uh, you get into some more nuanced appraisals of contribution value. How, tell, me, tell me that part. Is it contribution value? And you're dealing with very specific issues, easements, uh, wind projects, uh, data, Bitcoin data mining facilities. So that's not market value. That's more like uh, damages or due compensation due to the landowner. And so you eminent domain yeah. eminent domain is based off of market value it's not value in use although value in use can can translate to market value but when you head head to any comp compensation type stuff it's based off of market value uh, yellow book state of montana or anything like that's going to be market value based so there's a connotation out there that you you know easements they usually look at the fence values there's a connotation based upon a Wyoming court ruling that's worked its way up the, their food chain that the easement has a value in itself. But I would I would submit that that the value of that easement to which position in this case I think you're talking the landowner position is what impact that specific chunk of that easement has on the property. So typically anymore, when you look at a major transmission project, uh, even like the Northern Corridor project, which is, uh, which is starting to ramp up, it's a 500 uh, kV DC line between Center North Dakota and Colstrip that's proposed. They've already came out with a compensation package that substantially exceeds the fee value of the property. 
So let's say Coulter has a place and right now he can list it for a thousand. They're projecting line through there. And since he's a broker, he's going to list it for 2,500. Yeah, he will. Market. He will. He will. He will. Yes. Yep. Yep. And you'll let the mustache grow a little bit. Getting that 500 on that. Um, so in, in that case, they're paying some multiplier effect basically to the fee value. Even though they're not acquiring a fee interest, they're only acquiring easement interest. Um, so when you back up and you talk about impact of the property, it's it's more property specific, and 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 project specific too. Yep. I mean, obviously they got the money. Yep. To get it done. You look at KXL. You look at uh, One Oak. You look at at uh, several wind farms and their transmission. They they've got to set them out. They look at the base. And then they say, this is where we're going to be at. And that could be a multiplier at one and a half to three times, depending on where they're at. Multiplier of, of what? what of, it, the fee, of the fee value. So if I have ground that you as the appraiser believes is worth $1,000 an acre, what am I going to get compensated from One Oak for this wind project? So, so number one, um, it isn't what I believe as an appraiser. What's the market indicates for that ground? Okay. <laughs> see, see, you're you're already trying to sell just it. Your, it's just your damn opinion, George. <laughs> it's the market's opinion of it based upon your analysis and the well, highest and best use. Well, the broker needs to do a better job of marketing my property so that's worth twenty five hundred bucks an acre to some Californian who wants to shoot antelope in eastern Montana. So you're going to have those elk corral to let go when he shows up too. <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're joking about all this stuff, but it, it's actually kind of accurately describing all these factors and forces that, I mean, it's just such an imperfect market. And we talk about this routinely on this podcast. Montana land market is just so imperfect and the perceptions of value are come from so many different directions. So it's, it, yeah. there's a Let's lot. Go back of, to this multiplier. So what, what, Let's say I concede that it's a thousand dollars an acre. <laughs> what uh, what what am I being compensated on that multiplier from the big utilities wind project? So, court. Let's just say a quarter project of some sort, whether yeah. it's transmission above or below the ground or whatever. Wind itself, where the wind assets are, the generation production side, that's a whole different model. Um, but you're being compensated for them to have the right to put that pipeline or power line, transmission line under or across your property at whatever multiplier they're select, whether it's per acre, per tower, per structure, whatever it is, per rod. So on a 1.2 multiplier, is that the kind of the number we discussed uh, earlier? I would be receiving... Sorry, that's my phone. Yeah. Oh. You can hit decline or let it go. I would be, say this transmission line comes across 100 acres on my place. I would be compensated 1.2, so $200 an acre for 100 acres. Is that, how's, so I you got your, this multiplier value. You got your, your base. It, it's like paying a development uh, premium for a piece of property. You got your base. And then if that developer really wants it, they're going to pay some sort of multiplier premium for the property. So if Andy owns 100 acres on the West End, it's got a price of 20,000 acre, but a developer says, I want it, I'm going to pay in there 10 grand or a half a multiplier again above. Okay. So and he's distinguishing between, I mean, this is optional purchase with a, 
with an outfit that's got some resources, but yep. condemnation is a different if, different scenario. Yeah. So if let's say you go to condemnation, and, and that's a question you always have. Uh, first question I ask with this new transmission, do you have the right eminent domain? Because that changes the negotiation structure, how you're going to approach it. Um, if they do, and you can't reach an agreement with them, then you go to condemnation, where they can take the property for the use that they're, they're exercising their eminent domain, and basically they can build that transmission facility across the property. And you might be five years down the road before you finally settle out in the courtroom. And the big premise of the premium is to avoid that. That's, right? Yep, that's part of it. How, every, all these projects have a timeline. Um, whether it's short, long, or in between, there's a timeline there. So there, there's a willing pay a premium, but at the same time, um, you know, most landowners will realize that if you get too greedy, I can go around you. Um, and that's happened before, and it will mm. continue to happen. Does that happen more often than my land being condemned for the public good? If, if, they, have a, if they have a certificate or they have public necessity and have that, they have the right right away. But most outfits don't want to go through eminent domain or condemnation because it's very expensive. Mm. I mean, by, and time consuming, right? Yep, it's time consuming, expensive. By the time you get the attorneys through, the expert witnesses through, and everyone else, it gets real expensive real quick. So in the case of your land culture, let's say that they're willing to pay you two grand an acre and you say, no, I want four. They're going to look at it and say, do we pay or do we go around? And I know cases where they've gone around. They just say, well, we're going to go around you. Somebody else is willing to take that payment knowing that if I don't take that payment and you take it, it's kind of like one person told me their day was, I'm going to negotiate with them, but I'm willing to do it because they build that power line. Those are 200-foot tall towers, four per mile. He says, I'm going to have to stare at them. If I'm going to have to stare at them, I, I, should, I might as well get compensated for it. Oh, absolutely. You don't cut off your nose to spite your face. Yep. So take me through, I don't want to get too hypothetical, but just so I understand it better. Say I have this 1,000-acre place. Market value appears to be $1,000 an acre. <laughs> <laughs> this is Coulter's appears. He's not sure. I saw him wince a little bit yep. when, he, when he said yep. that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to be diplomatic, guys. I conceded to a thousand dollars an acre. Talk to my wife about it, and she yeah. thinks she thinks it's ludicrous that you can get a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's say this transmission line only cuts through the northeast uh, corner of my place, and it, it really only affects literally 20 acres but my belief is that it it deteriorates diminishes the inval the the value of the entire 1000 acres i mean it ruins it ruins the the setting it ruins the view uh, my whole ranch that 20 acres was really important to the whole part of the ranch. Can I get compensated on the entire 1000 acres? Well that's how yellow book looks at it the that, federal, the federal yeah. standards um do just that. Yep. So, so yellow book looks at what's the larger parcel. And in this case, the larger parcel could be that thousand acres, even though there's 20 acres uh, affected by the acquisition, that type of stuff. But only and only if the market says that it is. Just because you think it is and the market says it isn't, it isn't. It's because it's based on the premise of market value. 
the market says, yeah, there is a diminution to it, then yeah, you can support it. So now I'm going to get paid 200 bucks an acre, 20% premium on a thousand acres. Question for Max Hansen tomorrow. Can I 1031 that? Actually, he just spoke, you know, there was just an easement seminar up in Helena last week. And uh, I was actually surprised to the extent that you can do that. That was new information to me. Yeah. And, and this is a accountant question or tax attorney question too. There is a difference between what you get paid for the acquisition area and what you get paid for damages as far as taxation. So you have to step back and really talk to your accountant or, or tax attorney as far as that because they're treated differently. Well, that also might speak to wanting to do a deal on the front end rather than a, I mean, if you go through condemnation and then that might be more of a damages payout versus if you were negotiating up front and did more of a real estate uh, deal. It, it, it could be. Um, when you go through condemnation, though, if, if the acquiring agency or company was willing to pay you 1200 bucks an acre and it comes in and you're only the, the appraisal says, based upon all the market analysis, the market out there says it's 200 bucks an acre, that's what you receive. So you just forwent 800 bucks an acre. So there, there's, there's a crux there when you start having to go back in this day and age and actually head into M the domain because you could end up with less depending if it's a federal or state condemnation. So after sitting through eight hours of uh, discussion of material on easements and coming back and people asking me what I learned and whatnot, I keep saying, you know, talk to your attorney early and often. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you uh, roll up your sleeves on stuff like that and all you really do is realize how complex it is and how much expert involvement is, is needed. Yeah, any, any easement and through our other side of our business, we work with the easements both in gross, in corridor, you know, because they're, they're all different. Mm -hmm. um, your cohort and I had discussion one time about easements in gross versus easements in specific. So the old pipeline easements used to cover the whole section. It would say, I have the right to put 12-inch pipeline in this section and replacement thereof, but didn't clarify it. Mm. And it covered the whole section. And then the new easements say, this is my center line. This is the size of pipe. Everything else, and that's the only area you can use in that section, even though you describe the whole section. The premises are that area. Do they describe like 30 feet or 60 feet from yeah, the center line, they, that kind of thing? Yep, yep. Yeah. But you take the 1950s, 1960 area easements, and I've done some litigation work, valuation work because of those, where they can basically say, we can move our pipeline over a quarter mile and we still have a right to use that whole section. So, so they were encumbering the entire... They were encumbering the entire section. Okay. And I seen an easement there a day, a new one that was written. I read for a person. I said, you need to go back and describe this down to the corridor. Yeah. Random question here with easements and becoming more specific about area affected and area of use. I've seen them with the description using rods. Is that still a thing? And what the hell is a rod? <laughs> <laughs> that, that still is a thing. <clears throat> that, why would they not just use metric system? Because we're based on the imperial system, which is rods are part of a feet of, which are part of a mile. Okay. So there's 16 and a half feet in rods, four rods per chain, which is 66 feet. Okay. Okay. 
That seems that seems a little outdated. Seems I'm half out- expecting him to <laughs> pop out a sexton and start showing us. Yeah. <laughs> you Where's a- the sundial fit into this situation? Yeah. You know, how I- do you do your calculations? Do you have an old time? <laughs> no, I uh, I have an HP 12C and, and an Excel spreadsheet, and I made the comment to a client. I was pulled out my HP 12C at a board meeting. He, the president looked at me and says, you have one of those? I said, yep, and I feel comfortable with it. <laughs> well, when you started in school, you guys used, uh, didn't you have like beans on sliding, <laughs> sliding little? No, no, we, uh, we, we, reserved, we reserved the beans for later on generations that I had a hard time understanding stuff. <laughs> yeah, like the teachers when I was a kid who said, you need to know how to do mental math because you'll never know when you'll be without a calculator. I've yet to see that day that I'm without a calculator. <laughs> I've been there and done that when my calculator's kaput, so... <laughs> Well, what, uh, what are some of the more complex issues um, you're, you're working on or, that, or public knowledge that you're okay uh, discussing that maybe we should be aware of? I know we brought up Bitcoin and carbon. That, that is, seems to be the future where you've been doing some self-educating and you've been reading books. Um, you don't seem like the libertarian person uh, getting into crypto in the basement in the evenings, but you've been really educating yourself he, on He's it. not digging up any cash from the cans in the backyard yet. <laughs> no, not, not yet. Or at the homesteads that we know about. Got the metal detector out at the homestead. Yep. Um, so yeah, what are some public knowledge uh, issues, cases maybe that you can help our listeners uh, think about and muse about? I think from the Bitcoin standpoint, or let's just say that whole um, fintech and that whole area that based on the last few weeks, it's uh, it's kind of proven that it's not stable yet. And, you know, people think the stock market's somewhat stable, but it's, it's not stable. Um, it, it all responds to it. What's interesting is um, uh, like the Bitcoin people at uh, um, Harden, uh, you know, that, if I remember right, that's on the market, that power plant that they bought to power that with. Um, they were converting a coal-powered plant? They, they were using the, the plant to power the, the servers there. It was kind of a defunct coal plant Is yep. that, that, I guess, went away with, I don't know what killed coal. I haven't looked too far into what killed coal, whether it was market prices or regulation, labor costs, transportation costs, whatever, but... That plant went down, and they repurposed it for powering a Bitcoin mining facility. Yeah, they the same outfit had been looking throughout Montana, Wyoming, before they bought that plant. They had looked at Coal Strip. They had looked. They were looking for something with power sources close because I think everyone's aware that it uses lots of power. I mean, you can take a uh, cargo container and put I can't remember how many servers in it and you start thinking about all the power and heat generation from those servers and it's 24-7 so they were looking for a very stable power source and and uh, um, you know they they purchased that plant there's some other ones around the country too there's another outfit in the Williston country that's uh, trying to develop some up there um, and I've heard they've been mo- moderately successful at it but again, uh, the big question mark is, is where we're going to get the power and, and is it reliable? 
in the Williston, the Bakken Shale Formation Basin, that area, weren't they using uh, flare gas, gas that would have just otherwise been burned, flared off? So the, the North Dakota Pipeline Authority, uh, they put out a monthly report on production, wells, transportation, flaring. And I can't remember, it was like 8 or 12%, somewhere around 8 plus or minus percent of that gas is flared off now. So they're capturing a huge amount of it. But that was part of what they are going to do is try to capture the rest of that, put it through a generator and uh, or a turbine and generator and use that. And then uh, Butte was in the cross or had some interest as well, right? Because of the dark, cool caverns. Uh, yep. Cooling, less cooling, energy yeah. needed for cooling. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, I think that that's a whole... You know, that's whole market. You talk about the Bitcoin mining, uh, crypto mining, and that type of stuff. In the end, it's managing power and heat and uh, communication lines. Do you see that coming into um, purchase of land in, Mon in Montana? Do you see that becoming a viable currency? And I, what else is on my mind is we've talked about fractionalization uh, in past podcasts of ranch ownership. And do you see any indications of those things taking hold? I don't know if I see the, the crypto taking this hold as much as fractionalization taking hold. Let's just take and run with this for a moment and say that our land values keep increasing. Does a young producer... Do the guys like Coulter. Yeah, do the guys like Coulter. <laughs> you know, really that, optimistic. That, that are optimistic, commission-driven, and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you just have to throw some things back occasionally. Oh, yeah. Um, so let's just say, let's run with and say a producer's out there. And, you know, if you're, a far if you're a farmer, you're covered pretty well, at least from your expense side with the various crop insurances, the various other things that are available to manage, you know, at least cover your expenses for the most part. Uh, for the, graze the grazer, the cattleman, um, you know, you've got the, the disaster programs that, that cover. We won't go into the COVID stuff or anything else because kind of treat that as hopefully a one-time occurrence. But let's just say that you're trying to ranch and you've got a whole bunch of folks in there buying because, and I always treat the market, it's, it's layers. A place might have, you know, the base ag production on it. It might have purdies. It might have some wildlife on it whether you want to hunt it or view it. It might have some outside production, let's say from uh, wind or solar on it. And just the fact I want it, I want to be there type of thing. So those are all things we talked about that the rural market is encountering versus commercial. So let's just say that it gets to the point expensive enough that instead of going to the lender that you sell off a fractional interest or partnership or something in that property. And you might have a partner come in that's, that wants to hunt, let's say, um, and that type of deal. So that, that could be some type of fractional ownership. Now, how you get paid for that or if it's a JV or how you structure it, but there's a few of those happening out there that they're, they're bringing equity back in through the sale of the land, of the land or a portion of the land or certain rights to the land. Well, I don't want to get into... Uh a uh, think tank session with you guys because 
the Hoover Institute and the Cato Institute pay me to do that uh. Uh, in other days of the week, think tank. But so we need a fact checker. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking here. I'm just sitting here rubbing my head, trying to get my my mind around what Coulter just said here. So uh, efficient market hypothesis. If we take farms and ranches that are traditionally hard to sell and for they're hard to sell for a, a, a high value that the owner is comfortable with and one of the reasons is there's high transaction costs us brokers are not cheap um there's a limited amount of that might be the biggest understatement <laughs> we might be easy but we're not cheap Ooh. uh so there's there's high transaction costs there's actually especially in non-disclosure state there's very little transparency very little uh rapid dissemination of information uh there's asymmetrical information not everyone's on the same playing field uh you have guys like me who know it all and that's really unfair to the general market and then uh you have a limited number of buyers so if you fractionalize a 10 million dollar farm and now someone could buy into it at $50,000 um, in interest and it's readily liquidable. Uh, there's, there's an exchange, there's a way to immediately uh, liquidate that position. Shouldn't that add, shouldn't that, that liquidity be a premium? Uh, wouldn't that add value for you appraisers? Wouldn't that add value to the land if there's a better market or a better marketing means out there so so on on in that case what when am i buying as as an investor in this i'm not only buying the real property i'm buying if it's especially if it's a jbv or a partnership i'm buying management expertise and that type of stuff too so that's that's a non-tangible type of thing over and above and more business related or some other thing over and above the real property interests so, so you're mixing things up here, and you. But is that where you get your greatest return? That's probably what you're what you're striving for. And the key thing there too, you mentioned uh, Coulter as market is an established market, and this is what we're dealing with with things with like carbon credits and stuff like that. You know, the market's not. I mean, there's been some transactions, but a few transactions don't a market make. You know, so it's interesting if we if we started to see some tokenization. I mean, surely, you know, there'll be some early adopters and a few deals here and there, but I think George and I can speak from experience, you know, they'll all, they'll all look different. Uh, you know, they'll be hard to tie together uh, until, uh, until perhaps a true market gets established, then, then we're off to the races and, you know, have something that we can work with. But um, it's pretty tough when these new markets start emerging and the market really hasn't been established. Yeah, so it comes down to... When does the market finally settle down to something that resembles market value instead of a whole bunch of pieces? It's like saying I have one buyer, one main buyer in the area. Does that buyer make the market? Especially if he doesn't want my place. <laughs> yeah, so that one-off buyer uh, right now, we could, we could probably deem tokenization as very segmented and limited to people who are one comfortable with blockchain trading online they're pretty one-off type buyers yeah yeah but it's interesting though the underlying premise 
that we've started to touch on, you know, very high land values, increasing land values. I mean, we've been on this trend for two generations now of the, the underlying asset are outstripping the uh, income potential from ag production, but yet that's still the dominant use of the land. So we've just got this this uh, interesting market phenomenon with, with land values. So if you, if you if back to Andy's comment, if you take and look at where these values are at, what they've been doing over the years, and if you, if you back up and look at the gross rent multipliers out there based off of what you could lease the property out, rent it for to, for grazing and traditional ag stuff, planting the crops, that type of stuff, those, those multipliers are from 35 to 60. So that's saying it takes 35 to 60 years of gross rent to pay off what you paid for the property, the principal portion. So if you look at rates of return, you know, we're starting to see some areas that, that um, the cropland used to be three to 6% on dry cropland. It's down into the 1.7 to 2.5% cap rates. And when I say cap rates, that's net operating income, which is uh, basically the, the potential gross income, less real estate taxes, management, some repairs, expenses, um, and uh, insurance. So that's how we figure cap rate. Some people take cap rate and divide, take taxes off, and that's their cap rate. Um, <laughs> is that the kind of thing you have fun in court with? Well, occasion, occasionally. <laughs> but but you look like in the Dakotas, in in the Red River Valley, they went past 10,000 an acre on their cropland here earlier this year. Dry crop or irrigated? It's dry. It's oh, all dry. Wow. So, wow. And, and what's happening, talking to the appraisers, realtors back there, and some and some farmers I know, is that market seems like it's getting bifurcated a little bit, whereas the higher prices are being paid during auction. And if there's a transaction between individuals out there, it's it's lower than what the auction, it would brought at auction. So so question becomes, okay, what is the market? And who is who are the parties? You know, um, Golden Valley County, North Dakota, Beach Galva, um, recently did some work over there. Um, and unequivocally can say over a 13 to 14 month period, 15 month period, we've seen a 20 to 30% increase in the cropland. And that's super surprising to me because doesn't North Dakota have anti-corporate farming laws to where only North Dakotans and individuals are going to be the market for this, the buyers? They, they, they are anti-corporate and it's interesting that that came from back at the turn of the last century when there was a bunch of corporation type of stuff in there and, and had control a lot and that type deal. But it's mostly farmers positioning themselves, buying more lands like one told me. You don't make it anymore. Right now it's getting doggone expensive, but it's close to us and that type of stuff. Um, and here's another question. You mentioned auctions and this is a question I'd love to ask you. Why have auctions not taken ever been a very big phenomenon in Montana. We just don't see many auctions. Or ranches, period, in the U.S. It, auctions seem to fit farms better. Um, so I think, I think in Montana, auctions have the perception, and, and I've had this discussion with two, three of the big auction firms. Um, from, from here, this is the George Luther take on it, right. is that auctions have the perception, if you're going to auction, you got problems. 
Something's wrong. Something's wrong. You're trying to move it. Now, when you get into Richland County, Roosevelt, the northeast part of the state, um, the last auctions they had up there have been very, very good. And they've been, they've been strong. There's been some good competition there and everything else. As you move this way, um, yeah, it just, it's, people don't view it as an adequate marketing tool uh, on it. But, but again, I think it relates to just that whole perception that Coulter's got this place listed for $2,500. We all know it's worth 1000 and it's going to auction. By God, we'll get it for 1000 you know what I've seen just about as often as not is uh, <clears throat> property goes auction and it it just leverages the neighbor finally and right before the sale I, I I've been to three or four auctions I would say <clears throat> over the past couple of years and uh, right before the auction starts neighbor finally stepped up and took the property down and I've almost wondered if that's not the strategy in some cases spook the neighbor into uh, coming to the table. I, I think some of it is. You know, what's interesting too is is there's three auctions I know of that are no reserve right now. Yeah, that's interesting. I've seen yeah, I've noticed that too. Um but yet they're doing they and few that sold that were no reserve that still did very well. I wonder if part of that is the landowners uh part of that not wanting to auction a ranch. Of course you have the fear, underlying fear that Oh, this is not going to bring the highest and best price. Um, but they want to see a negotiated purchase. They want to have the opportunity to uh, address an offer that it gives them the power to say yay or nay. Uh, whereas with an auction, it's kind of blind and that causes some uh, unsurety that a negotiated purchase at least gives, they, gives them the belief they have the power to to see the offer and time to consider it. Uh, and I think that's some of it. Their thing with an auction is, is you do create uh, expectation of immediacy. You know, if I want it, I'm gonna have to do something. Um, you know, Pfeiffer's just sold a section of uh, grass between Weibo and Glendive, 1100 bucks an acre. Wow, yeah, so, that did well. So, but there's a bunch of stuff over there doing well at auction. I think that's that's on that edge of people that are familiar with it, um, are comfortable with it. Uh, you know, they used to be live all the time. They're online. Has that transition affected it that much? I don't think it has. Well, it's interesting, Clark, uh, that you mentioned sellers wanting to uh, see some market forces in play, I guess, or wanting to see. And I can tell you I've had a number of calls from sellers who have been on the market through the last two years and are, are they're frustrated and questioning uh, why they're not getting any offers, all this kind of stuff. And it's interesting. It seems like the last thing they want to talk about is pricing. Uh, but to your point, Coulter, about wanting to see market in action, I guess, is kind of how you describe that, like wanting to see some negotiation and some offers and stuff. And especially when people put stuff out there pretty high, sometimes they hear crickets and they wonder what's, what's happening. And then, of course, then they want to blame the broker. Well, I, I didn't see my property in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week. Uh, you must not be marketing sufficiently. Well, there's or the a local newspaper. Why isn't it in the local newspaper yeah. for eight million? Well, <laughs> and here's the problem with that is is what I call perpetual listings. Mm -hmm. You know, they're they're priced out of the market. The seller doesn't want to have to come back to reality, and 
and the broker's praying somebody shows up that might get near that price range, be an ass. But, you know, I can think of five, six properties right now that I call perpetual yeah. that have been on the market for four or five years, even through this, this last round that we've had. Right, right, absolutely. People are floored about how much inventory is out there. And yeah, the ones too that have been through five different brokerages over the past seven years or whatnot. Creates a lot of guys who pray. Well, have you, pray, have you, pray for a buyer. Have you heard this one, George? In, in life, you want to be the firstborn, you want to be on your second marriage, and you want to be the third realtor. Okay. <laughs> second wife. What did so, I say? You want to be the firstborn, the second wife, and the third broker. Yeah, right, right. So Coulter's got a problem then. <laughs> I, I, I do think auction theory is is undersold the value because it, like take that section in uh was that fallon county dawson dawson that 640 they could have said well we actually have four lots here adjacent to the highway and so we're going to auction these and each time one goes for a higher price the next one has to sell at that price if you want the entire 640 the what do, what do they call that? Par parceling it out. Parceling yep. and it's like Track, a, tracting it out. Uh, as ascension. It's it's graduated. Uh, uh, assemblage. If if you're looking from a buyer standpoint, are you paying an assemblage fee premium in the market to reassemble? Yeah, and um, the, the graduated auction pricing, where if you want the whole damn thing, you're going to have to pay what these smaller parcels. Yeah. Uh, settle that during this auction. And I think that's why ranches are a little harder to sell unless you've got different parcels that you can track out first, say three tracks for sale, and then it comes back as the whole, and then back to the tracks, back to the whole type of deal. So, uh, George, in eastern Montana, you know, we've been talking about all this crazy market, the market we've been in, market activity is perception of value out there and eastern montana is uh, a little different there's a lot of there's a lot of transactions that happen off market so i would kind of presume that um especially ag operators out there uh might be a little more uh knowledgeable about land value and, and things i know things are crazy out there given uh the local context but you know certainly not as crazy as southwest montana or western montana you know it, it has a little more of a basis in ag production and whatnot so what do you see out there you know is there a lot of is there do they have the same distortions that we see in the other parts of the state on market value and is it a big old mess like everywhere else or is it a little more calm and, and stable well it's it's a it's a mixture some areas you got a nuance of of certain things pushing the market and and there's really only one rhyme or reason that's it there's nothing else they're considering um, you know, the elk come up right now. We'll see what the what the working group comes up with that and the commission after we're done well, here. Well, and I just got to throw in, I mean, there weren't, there wasn't elk in eastern Montana when I was a kid. Um, that's, a, that's a relatively new phenomenon. No, there's there's been elk in the east side of the state. Um, you take like the Sarpy Creek country in the mid-1950s, they came in and replanted elk in there. Mm. Um, there's several areas where there were some small groups of elk. But they got harvested pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean it's nothing um, like today. I mean, no, today it's no. a whole new. It's a whole new. In my way of seeing it, it's kind of a whole new variable within a generation. It, it, it is. It is. And you know, I sit on the advisory council for Region Seven, 
in the last presentation we had there on elk numbers, mule deer numbers, antelope, you know, we talked about mountain lions, we talked about black bears, you know, there's some populations out there they don't have a handle on as far as numbers, so they're not sure where to set them, i.e. bears. We're seeing a lot more bears, but they're still allowing two. Um, when you look at elk, you've got tremendous herds in the breaks. You know, my brother-in-law last year up in the northwest part of Garfield County, he had 300 head on, on his hay fields because it was dry. You say you sit on the council, that's the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks Advisory Council? Yeah, yeah, for Region 7. And so, okay, so, and you... you we, won't, we won't spend the rest of the day discussing yeah. fish and wildlife in the no. state of Montana. Exactly. No, that's but what, what did you mean we'll see what the, the commission is going to say about this? What was the other one? The, the working group? Yeah, who, who's the working group? The working group the was put together um, um, in March was their first meeting. What and do they do? They're, they're, lo they're working through uh, looking at the uh, new elk management plan. Because the one we got right now is 15 plus years old. So this is like a citizen base? It's a citizen base. Who's given their uh, John Q. Public's input into wildlife management? Yep, they're having working, they're having working meetings, they're having public input, the whole thing. When they're done, they're supposed to give recommendations to the commission. Do and, more landowners? I guess we won't get in. Never mind. More well, landowners easy, tags, well, yeah. Well, yeah, well, we, yeah we've had, we've had, I've had that discussion over the past week with several landowners. How does that affect land values? <laughs> well, right now, if you look at elk, um, there, that's one of those driving factors out there in the market. I mean, well, and it really raised eyebrows when the, when the trophy was bagged in eastern Montana. Well, that, that surprised the, a lot of people, I think. The, again, eastern yeah. Montana not being known historically it, for giant elk. Well, eastern Montana was known historically for large and trophy elk, mm -hmm. but it was kept relatively quiet overall. And when that animal was taken on the south end of the forest, the rumor was that it was taken several other spots. Right. So that created some issues as far as um, public trespass issues and that type of stuff. But traditionally, there's, there's big animals on the east side of the state. It's just the fact that, that it wasn't discovered for a while. Right. And, and, you know, I was counting up one day in one area because we were having a discussion about hunting, and I, I was thinking about all the people that either friends, family, no hunting, or outfitting. In one area, there's 200 and some thousand acres there that basically doesn't allow any quote-unquote public hunting because it's all tied up or closed down. So that, that's the thing that FWP, the state has to deal with is how to manage the um, cow side of it because they're, they're trying to manage for the bull side, but the cow side is it. And then their thing like uh, my dad popped up one day, we're having discussing what happens if you get brucellosis in an elk herd? How does that affect things? So there's, there's a whole bunch of issues there just with that. And it's, it's, you know, it's like I told a billionaire one time, his reps, I said, you guys forget about how passionate Montanans are with their wildlife. Well, and do you see the situation where the, the rancher, uh, especially if it's kind of over his lifetime or, you know, the, the elk pressure increases dramatically. So here he's got this, it's, it's a, been a problem for him until it's time to sell. And now all of a sudden he's, he's uh, you know, 
I hate, awesome. I hate him. I hate him, and I'm going to talk down about him until I want to sell my ranch, and I'm going to talk good about him. Then, yeah, then yeah. I'm going to go corral everyone and let him go when Coulter's out there. <laughs> yep, right, with right. with that high high ping uh, kind of his. But you know, I mean, that, that that encapsulates kind of an interesting issue that we see across Montana, where depending on your position, you know, if you're if you're an operator, you got certain issues and motivations. But now, if you're a seller. It's amazing how that switch flips. I mean, even yep. even railing about values, you know, you'll hear you'll hear people, you know, really complain and and talk about the problems it causes and pricing people out and blah blah blah. But when it comes to time to sell their place, um, it, you might be you, a different yeah. tune. you're maximizing value there on something folks want at the current time. Right. Um, you know, it's just like areas of scenic stuff. There might be one person buy, he tells friends or she tells friends, they start buying that area. And then all of a sudden you, you flop in a, a wind project and they say, no, we don't want it because what we bought it for was our view shed. Right. Things, we just want to look at stuff. Well, that gets into my next question. What is driving Eastern Montana values? Like let's take Ingemar probably a limited buyer set of people who want to live in Ingemar, Montana. And let's say that the pasture is worth 350 bucks an acre out there and the quote unquote livestock value is 70 bucks an acre. If there, and there's no elk out there, the minerals have long since been severed. What the hell else other reason is there to own land in Ingemar other than for livestock? Like what's the difference there between 350 and 70? Why, why is that happening? So you're talking economic, you're saying an economic threshold to 70 and everyone's paying 350. Yes. So again, it comes back to all those different interests or layers in the, in the market. Like you said, you don't have elk out there per se, but they're close. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've seen certain brokers say, you know, elk in the area, elk closer, elk come through the property. Right. Um, just got to drive two hours. Yeah, yeah. You could say close to where Yellowstone's being filmed. <laughs> there, there you, there you just go. Gotta, you there just got to go. drive eight hours. There you go. We, we, you know, we put in our appraisal reports that there is a resident elk herd in the area. Um, you know, they kind of clarify, and that's kind of some of the matrix we do. But going back to the Ingemar question, I think part of it's just a general response to the overall market. You know, if if I've got the funds to buy a $400 an acre place and everything I look at is 600 to 800, where am I going to gravitate to? It might not be the best in the world, but yet in the end, if I'm still running a cow, I'm still from a capital cost standpoint, lower than that 600 bucks. And that ground has historically appreciated at basically the same rate as, as everyone else. So it's an investment. It's a, it's a good investment. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's part of this whole discussion is, it's an investment. Can the rate of appreciation continue to go on? Can it be supported within the market by all those forces outside the market? But you take you take that Northern Rosebud County, Southern Garfield County. Um, you know, there's been some spurred interest there because of the of the paleontology finds that are in that country. But even now, with the sales up there, you're seeing reservations on on the paleo. Um, um, resources there. But you don't see dinosaur bone diggers influencing market prices in the positive direction. You, I mean, you, you don't because motivation, is it, it? No, it, it's kind of like Coulter and Andy. It's like uh, having a field alfalfa, you cut it for hay, 
do you take a set cutting or do you use it for seed? Um, kind of the same way uh, type of deal. So I think part of it is gen just a whole general market movement. And if you look percentage wise of the increases across the area, the percent increase is a little slower um, and not as steep, but it's still reflecting that overall. Don't you think uh, investment is an underlying component of highest and best use on just about every property in Montana at this point? Um, it's interesting because we've had that discussion about small town commercial stuff. I mean, population centers, 600, 400 and under. Are people buying those type of properties as investment or are they buying it because it's owner operator? So, you know, we've, we've dealt off in a whole different market, but back to the rural market, um, I think some of it's investment because everyone's looking at that appreciation out there. But at the same time, if you look at Paradise Valley, yeah, the prices have been going up and everything else. Knowing three or four clients that have places up there, you know, they bought them a long time ago and they still have them. It's their, it's their go-to getaway for two to four weeks out of the year. And so if, if, uh, He's thinking deep now. Yes. <laughs> Let me gather my thoughts here. If held for investment purposes is the highest and best use, who are you guys as appraisers to tell us what a good investment is? You're kind of being a financial advisor, an unlicensed financial advisor. Tell us that the highest and best use of this asset is for investment purposes. So Coulter, I'll go back to highest and best use. In fact, what drives highest and best use? And that's what's going on in the market and what, what the property could be utilized for. So it could be utilized for anything. No, not anything. You know, there's only so much you can do like in Ingemar, Montana, it's not going to be industrial probably. It's not going to have a developed type of, um, uh, let's say wind farm because you're in coarse sage grouse habitat in that area. So that some of that um, legal, ESA, all that type of stuff, governmental precludes those uses. So, so now you've narrowed it down to, you know, what's the primary use? Ag out there is the primary use with some overlying uses of land ownership. Again, Andy's comment about, you know, highest and best use is economical of some sort. That's why when we get and talk about conservation uses, they're not an economical use. And that, that was a serious debate here almost 20 years ago in the valuation circle and, and everything is what is a conservation use and it's not economical. It's got to be something that drives, drives you want to exchange money for. So you, sorry, Andy, I'm going to, you just went through for Ingemar that you went through that. Is it legally, permissible is it uh, economically feasible and physically what, possible physically, physically possible. possible and is a max you just ruled out a lot of shit for you <laughs> yes it did yes it did um you know at one point they had a proposed 28 megawatt gas fired turbine off the out the gas field up there um is that a, is that an economical use for that whole area um probably not because that's just one one particular value and use there that that they're going to put in to push the grid. Did it ever get off the ground? No. Well, and what I find, the more I uh, interview buyers and push them on their motivations, I feel like investment uh, surfaces. Even you mentioned folks that have holdings in Paradise Valley. Valley. 
<laughs> have for a long time. And, and so they may say, well, you know, that's a recreational or, you know, family getaway. That's not really an economic component, but especially as, you know, our land values have just, you know, increased, you know, my whole career, aside from little blips like 2008, you know, we've just seen this steady rise of, of values. Um, people are aware of that. And if you really push them, they'll say, well, yeah, I, I'm not losing, I'm not planning on losing money. Yeah. On that yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and, and then, and talking about the operators, the ag operators, and we talked about, you know, Jesus, $10,000 an acre uh, cropland, which there's no way that pencils, but they're farmers. That's what they do. They need land base to do what they do. And I would suspect that they're looking at that as almost a separate investment. There's there, you mentioned their comment was this stuff just keeps going up. I better get in. They're thinking that, you know, someday down the line, uh, that's going to be an escape or, you know, that's a retirement uh, fund or whatever. You know, the value is going to increase. So they're making an investment in the land that facilitates their, their um, ag operations. But underlying everybody's mind in this market, and it's just the nature of this market and the values we've seen for such a long time that investment plays in. And when I push people, like I've already said, you know, on their motivation and stuff, sooner or later I get to, oh, yeah, well, I'm not planning on losing money. Uh, you know, land does appreciate well, does anyone plan on losing money on an, whatever investment they make? Yeah. You know, if we put it in that context, um, you know, that's part of the part of it. You know, and I know you push them. They say, yeah, it's a good investment. Well, okay. What's a good investment? Well, it adds to my place or it does this, or in one case, um, small six figure purchase added to eight sections, you know, a seven-figure additional value to eight sections because guess what it did? It secured legal access. Is that an investment? Yeah. I mean, all I can say is moving forward, George, all my appraisals on the highest and best use are going to be investment slash ag slash recreation. <laughs> so, That's George, not, or it could be inverse sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to see the United Bank of Switzerland and Hancock Financial, uh, TIAA CREF, are they going to start by be buying ranches faster? You know, I don't know if they will. Um, I've asked that question of some clients I've worked with, and all of them are oriented towards cropland of some sort. Annual yield. Annual yield, bigger yield. Because think, think about it. If, if we talk recreation slash investment slash ag, you know, if you start running this, these cap rates and you hit negative cap rates, that, the annual yield's gone. So now they're holding it as holding as investment something play on and hopefully I can sell it at or more than what I paid for plus the improvements I put in um, and you know we see areas in eastern Montana the Dakotas even that are that exhibit some of that are starting to exhibit more but what's really interesting right now is the cropland to see if the rental rates catch up with what's being paid out there negative cap rates that's that's pretty interesting I wouldn't that put you into some other asset class? You're not really like land or ranching or farming. Like I can see art. If you hold a piece of art, that's a negative cap rate because you're not going to be leasing it out. Yeah. You're just going to be riding the appreciation, appreciation. and yep. paying for a little security and maintenance here and there. That analogy has been made more than once that the Montana land market is almost more along the lines of an art market or a, or a uh, you know, uh, hot rod market or something specialty, specialty Spe especially speculative type of market set the only way you measure if you can get anything else is taking it to the market 
and seeing what, what it ends up as. Yeah, and even though they might be good investments in the long run, given that they generally appreciate what, there's still issues of liquidity. And, and I think especially thinking from an outsider's perspective or thinking from like an institutional investor's perspective, it's like, well, timing of that, of that market when we get out, because, uh, you know, our market on the whole, I would argue, has been very strong. I mean, 2008 was obviously a, an exception that we felt. Yeah, but 2008 to 2010 was, you know, there's some areas lost a third mm -hmm. of, the, of their value pricing during that time period. Do you guys think we could see negative cap rates? I mean, if we were, it seems like it would have been when the 10-year treasury was at 1.6%. I think we're there on some ranches. There's some we're, properties. We're, we're there on some properties already. What, what type, <clears throat> what makes up this, what are the attributes? What are the reasons that these properties are negative cap rates? Large lodge on them or what? Well, it's, it's not only that, but it's the motivation of the buyer is not to get prices costs back as far as um, the income stream. It's for use, recreation, um, that type of stuff is, is what they're looking at. And if, let's say, they get back 10000 a year in the lease, but that doesn't cover any of the holding costs, it just offsets a little bit of it. So more recreation. Big it's more big, big, big recreational ranches, trophy properties, compounds. And I, you could say a compound is, could be 640 or it could be 5,000 acres. Mm -hmm. um, we label them as recreational ranches, um, that type of stuff. Um, you know, the primary motivation is not to produce income off it, it's to enjoy the property. So and maybe that's why we won't see institutional investment is these are such unique, one-off, non-homogenous, non-commodity-like properties and farmland I'm not going to talk down about farmland in the Midwest, but it's kind of more commoditized. It's kind of more homogenous. It, 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 it is. It is. And, and so that maybe that just presents way too much risk for institutional investors who have a duty and obligation to be more conservative for their pension funds. Yeah. So if you look at the sales, like in Montana, besides the producers, local producers, um, and local, whether it's farm ranch, farm or ranch, um, where are the, the investor groups and organizations buying? And it's the dry cropland, irrigated cropland. They're, they're buying some ranches, but it seems like if it's a ranch, it's, it's uh, somebody that has, uh, especially the larger ones, uh, more wealth or or building up a series of ranches uh, well, for whatever. Mormon church likes that investment. Yep, Mormon Church likes an investment. There's a few other individuals out there like those investments too. I've certainly seen a couple. I've got these calls from brokers that got a big buyer that's really into rent, you know, just wants to buy a huge ranch and, you know, likes the investment class, blah, blah, blah. And they'll seem to wash out once they roll up their sleeves. And, and you know, I've had quite a few of those end up with nothing, you know. Um, so here, here's the client. my clients. <laughs> <laughs> I only set them up for success. Andy. Yeah, and your boots are staying brown too. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I almost said that once before, but I decided to be nice now. You couldn't help it. it no, got I could, point it got to the point that, that we had to do something here. So, so here's case in point. You look at like folks looking at developing irrigation projects, you know, as an investment. And they look at alternative investment to that and they say, hey, when we, when we apply $50 million in a project, and we take that $50 million and go to an alternate investment outside of egg, and we can two times to five times our investment in an egg, we're getting 4% back when we put all this money in, mm -hmm. versus six, eight, 15%. That, that's a shock of reality to some of these entities and individuals that the returns aren't higher in egg. And like I tell them, it's, it's always been that way if you look at it on a landlord tenant type of basis. Now, if you throw the owner operator in there, operate it and everything else, yeah, you should be able to capture some more. That's what I've always thought about held for investment purposes is, yeah, you can have it in your portfolio, but I would think it, it would be somewhere near the bottom of, of good assets you should be investing in because, uh, I mean, there's just so many other opportunities out there. It should be an alternative to 10-year treasuries. Like how many people want to hold a 10-year treasury? So if you, if you look at other investments, you look at this building, um, especially with the tenant, if you bought with yeah, the tenant, got tenant, tenant issues in, tenant this. Issues in <laughs> this building. Um, Riff raff in here. <laughs> so if you look at that as an alternative to, to invest in an acre of land, you know, your, your rate's higher, but really right now in some commercial, when you look at the commercial cap rates, they're not much higher as far as office properties, some others. Um, there are some areas where we've seen cap rates on multiple family in the 14, 17%, which is exceptional, but that whole market's going through a transition. So you're, the higher, of course, the higher the rate, the higher the risk, but the higher the reward. So if you look, somebody that says two times to five times, then they're also taking on, they should be taking on more risk. So back to your, your comment about ag and, you know, let's say farmland at three to four percent, depending on how you figure what your net income is, how you get there, because that's important too. That's that's a pretty stable rate, pretty safe. But how much risk are you really taking? Yeah, I think it's if it's a ca if it's a cash lease, how much risk are you taking? The uh, historically the very low risk. Yeah, the very low risk. The and the beta yep. exposure to the equities market is super low. Yep. So that's part of why why I think folks look at it is because it's just part of that portfolio and it's just kind of let's say steady eddy type of thing knowing you're not going to get much if you do a crop share basis and that type of stuff start sharing inputs then you're going to expect more because your rates going up and then you got you got additional management costs and everything else on it so it, that's that's why these folks sometimes look at these investments say hey we're going to do a JV a partnership of some sort we retain management, which can be a plus or minus, depending on what happens there. And either they, they perform, keep performing, or else things hit for a wreck, Some, and sometimes they do. And your interest in that JV is highly illiquid, which is why we need to tokenize. The, and that, yeah, there's part of that. that that's and your interest, Andy, Andy's going to value your interest in that JV at a... 60% discount. And Andy uses 60% no matter what. It's just yeah. his go-to rate. I've got a standard highest and best use. I've got a standard discount rate. I just, I just find standards work well and make things easier. 
Well, any any final thoughts? What's the market doing today as we wrap this up? I I also want to give a shout out. I was doing some sleuthing on our data. I see uh, Windsor, Colorado has a few downloads. Hmm. Looks to be uh, Hayden Outdoors. That's their corporate sure. office. Okay. So yep. shout out to the guys at Hayden. Thanks for uh, thanks for downloading, listening in. I see that you are from Windsor, and say hi to Dax Hayden for me. Yeah, and I get uh, just around town and whatnot, mostly realtors, brokers, I guess I would say, but uh, surprising people that speak up and say they listen to our podcast and enjoy it, uh, you know, regularly, and, and that's great. Yeah, we're just continuing in this market of constrained supply and, uh, you know, pent-up demand, so it's still just that kind of standoff. Um, I, I do get the sense that uh, that demand is... I mean, it's obviously changed uh, since last year and the year prior. Less, less desperation, less, you know, that those buyers are, are got their pencil sharpened and they're, you know, know what they want. And they're maybe a bit patient at this point. Uh, you know, the, the, the fluff has been taken off the top a little bit. But, um, I, yeah, I just, I see 2022 as kind of a standoff year uh, between buyers and sellers as far as that goes. And then we're just going to see far less volume. Uh, than, than prior years, but but values and prices certainly still up. Yeah, I think I think from a standpoint of uh, trending, we're going to still see some increases out there and that type of stuff. Um, we've seen the big bump, um, the uncertainty in the market, especially commodity markets, uh, going to cause a few things to happen there. Uh, Eastern Montana, I think the other thing that's coming into play is is development of. Um, uh, you know some alternate energy sources out there wind farms solar that are being being worked through of course big one being developed north of mile city right now uh there's at least three other ones that are in the development phase so if the producers you know the owners say hey i want to participate you know that's their decision it's do what's best for them on that type of thing but it's also providing some passive income too um, and especially coming off years like last year. Well, George, I think now that you have some predictions out here on this, we're going to have to get you back in for a follow-up. In, in two years? <laughs> I was thinking nine months at most. This, this thing could change quickly, and it'll be interesting. It, it, and it could, it could change. Commodities and interest rates, yep. as you were saying. Um, the, the best way to determine that is how many calls I start getting from attorneys about appraisals on stuff that uh, they're having problems with. And then a mid midterm election, which I just, I cannot stand sellers and buyers who say, oh, I'm gonna wait. We gotta wait until the election. I don't know what's gonna happen. This could yeah. just really shift things. I'm like, geez, pick a horse and ride it. This is ridiculous. Quit coming up with excuses. The election is not gonna, not gonna do it. No, the salesman coming out. Yep, the sales. <laughs> pressure, I was just, pressure, I was, pressure. I was just going to say, and I, I did not admit to having a sales license, but I do. But uh, I have a, yeah, I have yeah. a little trouble getting into Coulter's mind overall. <laughs> but, well, let's go grab some lunch, guys. What do you say? Okay. Uh, thanks for coming in, George. It's uh, great to Thank have you, George. George. Appreciate it. all your wealth and uh feedback please keep sending us questions appreciate everyone's input and uh there was a question i apologize couldn't get to read them i didn't print them off i was so excited to have george on but send them in we'll answer thanks all right okay thank you as a real estate and finance professional 
we know that you want to be a top producer and high performer. In order to do that, you need to grow your portfolio, grow your influence. The problem is rural real estate is a private and closed off network that is very difficult to enter and gain acceptance within. It's a nuanced segment that requires years of experience. This may make you feel frustrated or even scared given the high costs of getting established. We get it. But in the age of information, we believe you already have inexpensive access to knowledge and resources that would improve your competency. We understand that you feel as though you don't have time for continuing education or that you'll worry that you're wasting your time on redundant and obsolete information. For this reason, we feature only the best accredited and established rural real estate professionals who analyze, transact, and manage billions of dollars annually. No newbies here. Your goal is to efficiently improve your business and be viewed as a trusted advisor. So here's how we can do that together. One, starting right now, make a simple commitment to self-improvement. Two, be sure to make it easy, convenient, and attainable. Rigidity rarely works in the long run for transformation. Three, make your structure of self-improvement entertaining and engaging. If it's fun and intriguing, you'll have a better shot at making it last. With that in mind, click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Then go to ranchinvestor.com slash podcast and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. We also have a private Facebook group simply called Ranch Investor. And this is where we can best interact with you by answering your questions and taking your recommendations. Most exciting though, is being able to follow us on YouTube by clicking the subscribe button. In the meantime, keep a notepad and pen handy. You'll undoubtedly be thinking of clients and peers in mind as you listen. Go ahead and text or email them a link to this episode for your constant contact, CRM, and your goals of being a center of influence, the expert in your field. Stick with it, and soon you'll stop waiting for the phone to ring with new business. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.